Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. On Sunday of Passion Week, Christ was welcomed into the city to the cries from the people of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On Monday, he comes back to the city, specifically to the temple, and he drives out the money changers, the the commerce that was going on within the temple. And he spent the rest of the day teaching to the people and also healing. <clears throat> then on Tuesday, Jesus enters the temple courts and the representative group of Sanhedrin come up to Him, the religious leaders of that day, comes up to Him with bated breath and are ready to, to attack Him, to allow Him to indict Himself. And so that's what we'll, this is where we're at in chapter 12, which we'll be looking at. But chapter 11, I want you to notice in verses 27 and 28 to see some context before we get into our passage. Chapter 11, verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem, that is, Jesus and His disciples. And He was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to Him and began saying to Him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? As we saw last week, Jesus was avoiding the trap that they were trying to set for Him. If He can simply say that He's doing this on behalf of God, then He will... We can charge him with blasphemy. If he says that he's doing it on behalf of men, then we can uh, we can turn the people against him. Either way, he will be indicted. We will charge him. And this is really a continuation. Our passage today in chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, is a continuation of what happened last week that we saw last week. It's still taking place on Tuesday. They're questioning his authority. Notice chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He he sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not read, have you not even read this Scripture, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize Him and yet they feared the people for they understood that He spoke the parable against them. And so they left Him and went away. As recipients of the gifts of God, we should never reject the God of the gifts. 
This is a continuation of his conversation with the Sanhedrin. And what you'll notice at the end, the, the last verse we read there, is it tells us that he, they recognized that he spoke this parable against them. And so we need to understand who this them is. Luke 20, verse 19 recounts the same story. And at the end he says, the scribes and the chief priests understood that he spoke the parable against them. So Mark simply says they, hoping that you'll understand that from the previous context, what we looked at last week, chapter 11, that we're talking about uh, verse 27 of chapter 11, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So the religious rulers... The religious leaders of that day. That, this is who Jesus is directing this uh, parable towards. The chief priests were made up primarily of Sadducees and the scribes were made up primarily of Pharisees. So what we have are the two representative groups that we, we recognize in the New Testament. The two oppositional groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that's really what is made up here. They're referred to as the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And it seems to answer their question that they ask in chapter 11, verse 28. And that is, okay, Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Who's giving you the power, the authority to, to, to cast out demons, to heal, to, to cleanse out the temple? Who's giving you that authority and to teach with such authority that you bring? And I think Jesus... He answers them, as we saw last week, but also He continues here with a parable. And He answers them again. This is by what authority? In other words, He's going to say, they're basically asking, who, is, who makes you the representative of the, vine, of the vineyard? Who makes you that representative? And He's going to say, I, I'm coming through the, by the authority of the owner of that vineyard. That's what we'll see as we go through. And so it says that, that He speaks to them, verse 1, in parables, in parables. Now, Mark only records one parable, this one that we just read, but Matthew records two others. And it is the parable of the sons that comes before this parable, and then also the parable of the marriage feast. You can see that in Matthew chapter uh, 21, verse 28 through 32, and then 22, verses 1 through 14. Now, as part of this group that is listening in, there's probably the disciples and other followers of Jesus Christ. They're probably thinking about uh, what Jesus had just told them. And they, they should have recognized, if they were paying attention, if they were thinking back to what Jesus has said, has said before, look at chapter 8, verse 31, they should have recognized that this parable was referring to Jesus Christ. That Jesus was this rejected Son that we read about. Look at chapter 8, verse 31. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Okay, so those three groups of people that are mentioned here in verse 31 are the same groups of people that Jesus is talking to in chapter 12. And, and what Jesus is saying in chapter 8 is, these are the people that will reject Me. And so the disciples were listening, listening intently. They should have recognized that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders were the ones who were representative of Israel and would be the ones who would ultimately reject Him through, through, by killing Him through crucifixion. Notice back in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the privilege of stewardship. 
these people, Israel, and specifically these religious leaders, were, were recipients of God's gifts. And so they should have recognized who gave them to them. Notice the gifts. First, the background in verse 1. Um, Jesus could have been talking about a fishing business. He could have been talking about a sheep farm. But instead, he uses the illustration of a vineyard. Now, why would Jesus use the illustration of a vineyard? I think he does this purposely. If you'll notice in your Bible, in verse 1, much of that verse is in all capital letters. Did you notice that? Now, what that means is that's a, it's a direct quotation or a reference to an Old Testament passage. If you look into your margin of your Bible that corresponds with chapter 12, verse 1, you'll notice that it points you back to where? Isaiah chapter 5. Right? So Jesus is bringing in some Old Testament imagery about a vineyard. And he's using words, language that the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees should have understood. And in that passage in Isaiah 5, we won't turn there, but that's referring to Israel, that, that Israel is God's vineyard. And in that passage, if you were to look at that, you'd notice that they're actually a, a prosperous, a fruitful uh, or they should have been a fruitful, but they end up being a fruitless vineyard. They fail to produce the, the, the fruits of righteousness. Here, however, what we're talking about is not that the vineyard doesn't produce, because it does. Do you, do you remember? It says that, that it, when it was time for the produce to, to be taken back to the owner, the vine growers would not give it to them. I think what's going on here is, I hope you recognize that the vine growers are the the, the leaders, the religious leaders of the day. They are, are watching over this, this vineyard of Israel. Okay? God's truth, God's special people, they should have been good representatives of God. Instead, they, they, they use it unwisely. They use it foolishly. They turn on, on the owner and on his servants. Notice all the blessings that they received. The blessings of God's resources. Notice a, plan, a man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower. So we have three things here. We have a wall, which is probably more like a fence to keep unwanted animals out to protect the vineyard. Uh, then you have the vat, which was under the wine press. The, the owner took special care to go in and dig a vat out so that the people could trample on the grapes and then have a lower vat where it would catch all the juice and, and come out through a, a, um, through a, a, a channel, a spout, and would be eventually put into wineskins and, and, uh, and other containers in order to maintain that produce. And then you have a tower probably referring to a watchtower, which would allow them to guard against unwanted creatures inside their vineyard. I think the point of all this is, is God saying, look at all the things I've given to you. Not only do, do I take very good care of my vineyard and make sure that, 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 that there's going to be adequate resources for you, but I expect there to be growth. If the vineyard never grew anything, how good would a, a vat be or a fence? What, what would need to be kept out? What would be the point of a watchtower? God was saying that, that my people, Israel, are going to prosper. There is going to be great things that happen through them. And so I need these vine growers, these religious leaders, to represent me well, to be good representatives of me. 
And notice the, the arrangement between God and His stewards. They rented it out, it says at the end of verse 1. God rented it out, or the owner, I should say, rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey. Now, Matthew 21.41 uh, talks about what the ideal situation is, and that is that, that these renters were simply tenants. They would, they would pay back some of the proceeds as, as, um, as a response to what the owner had done for them, which is allow them to have part of the produce. It was sharecropping. They, would, they were supposed to give a fixed amount back, amount back to the owner. This should not have been a surprise to them. When the servants came to collect, they should have happily given it back. In fact, many of the agreements during this time would have uh, included that, that the sharecroppers, the vine, the, the vine growers, would give as much as a half of the produce back to the owner. They would be able to keep the other half for themselves. And so when we read a story like this, what we need to think about is, is, is what was the response of the religious leaders? Who did they think they were in this story? When they were hearing this for the first time, okay, we, we know how this all turns out. We know that they're, they're going to beat the slaves and eventually the son, but, but what would they have been thinking? Okay, when, when, when God begins, or when, when Jesus begins with this reference to Old Testament Israel, and how they are vineyard, this beautiful picture of God's grace. Who would they have thought they were? They probably thought they were the servants. And they were waiting for this story to turn out well. But what they're going to find is that Jesus is actually speaking this against them. What has God entrusted to you? What kind of graces has God poured out upon you? How many blessings has God given to you? I mean, there's just multiple ones that we can think of, but think about all the blessings that you have through His Son, Jesus Christ. The fact that He came and was the perfect representation of God because He is God, and then He came as the Word of God, that, that He didn't just leave with, with nothing left behind, he, he left us His Word. And so we have, we have a great revelation from God. God has provided for you a refuge from the world where you can worship a place where you can grow in your knowledge and your love for the Word of God in this church. God has given you the privilege of living in a country where it is legal to pray in public, where it is legal to read your Bible, to meet for worship, to spread the Gospel. We have a great privilege from God. And as a result, I believe we have a great responsibility and accountability to God to use those resources like these vine growers should have used them rightly. Notice the picture of rejection. Although they were the recipients of the gifts from God, they rejected the God of the gifts, didn't they? They rejected the owner. The rejection of God's messengers is seen in verses 3-5. through five. They took him and beat him and sent him away. That is the first slave that was sent to, t to bring back the crop. Again, he sent them another slave, verse 4, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully, and he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. Now, the Jewish leaders must be thinking, what has happened to this beautiful picture that Jesus had been portraying? We were those vine growers, and now he's saying that we beat all these servants and killed some. Now, if they were 
if they were thinking, they would have thought back to what had been done to the Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah 20, verses 1 and 2 tells us that Jeremiah was beaten and put in prison. Elijah, one of the servants of God, speaks of prophets who were killed in 1 Kings 18, 19, 1. And then listen to 2 Chronicles 24. Yet, He, God, sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Though they testified against them, they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, He also has forsaken you. So they conspired against Him, and at the command of the king, they stoned Him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. Second Chronicles 24, 19-21 This has happened before. These Jewish leaders have already killed, they've already beaten former prophets of God, former servants of God. When the servants come to collect, they beat them. They beat some, as it says in verse 6, and they kill others. Or verse 5, excuse me. Now we could argue that these vine growers didn't know. They, they, they were simply trying to protect the crop that was given. Maybe some robber was coming in and pretending to be the owner's servant. Maybe they didn't know. So, so we should let them off the hook. But notice what they do to the owner's son in verse 6. He, the owner, had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. We see the rejection of God's son in verses 6 through 8. We recognize by this point that the owner's son is Jesus. I think the chief priests recognize this as well. We'll see that when we get to verse 12 because they say they recognize that this parable was spoken against them, yet they reject it. Notice the powerful love of God. Verse 6, He had one more to send, a beloved son. Now this should ring, ring in our ears as something we've already heard in Mark's Gospel. In Mark chapter 1, verse 11, at the baptism of Jesus Christ, God calls out from heaven, This is my beloved Son! in whom I am well pleased. And then also chapter 9, verse 7, he says the same thing. This is my beloved Son. God loved His Son, and yet He, he sent Him to be rejected by the, the Jewish leaders. Now, why would the Sanhedrin, why would these Jewish leaders reject God's Son? I think John chapter 11 gives us the best um Answer to this. John chapter 11. Let me ask you to turn there. John chapter 11 is the recounting of Lazarus having died and Jesus coming to his tomb to raise him from the dead. After this, the Jewish leaders who heard about it and who were there became concerned. This man is starting to, to draw a crowd. This Jesus. He's starting to draw a crowd. And we need to make sure that this doesn't get out of hand. So why would the, the chief priests, why would the, the rulers of that day, the religious rulers, reject God's Son? I think Caiaphas gives us the best answer. Look at chapter 11, verse 47. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council okay, after Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. And we're saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. 
And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Okay, so what do they see is going on? They see that Jesus is getting, gaining a following, and if they don't do something about it, what will happen? The Romans will come in and they will take away their Jewish rule. So what were they concerned about? They were concerned about their own rule. Look at verse 48 or 49. But one of them, that is the chief priest, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account all that is expedient for you. Excuse me, that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Caiaphas is saying it would be better for this one man to die so that the whole nation doesn't have to perish. Do you, do you understand what's happening here? The Jews are going to be oppressed. If we, if we are taken away from rulership, if we, if we allow this Jesus to come in, then He's going to, 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 to cause all these people to die. It would be better if we just killed that man and allowed everybody else in, the, in our nation to live. And really... Caiaphas speaks better than he knows, doesn't he? He's saying that it, it requires that one man die so that the nation of Israel can live. And that is exactly what happens when Jesus dies, isn't it? Turn back to Mark chapter 12. So we need to see the price of rejection in verse 9. After sending... His son, they kill him, and they take the inheritance for themselves. They hope to take the inheritance for themselves. Look at verse 9, the price of rejection. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Jesus asks a question that causes the people to come into his conversation. What, what do you suppose would happen if, if this were a real story? If the owner of the vineyard were rejected, all of his servants were rejected, and then he sends his son, his son is rejected and killed, what do you suppose the owner would do? Matthew records that it's actually the Sanhedrin that answers the question. They say, well, they need to die. Because to disrespect God's, the owner's son, is to disrespect the owner. To disrespect God's greatest possession is to disrespect God. And as a result, we should not expect anything else than judgment. The response by God is this. He will come and He will destroy them. Now, we need to understand who God will destroy. We need to understand the imagery. Who will He destroy? Will He destroy the vineyard? No. He's destroying the vine growers. And who are the vine growers? Okay, the vineyards Israel, the vine growers are the religious leaders. This is who He'll destroy. In fact, I think this destruction comes into play in AD 70 when Jerusalem is destroyed, when the temple is wiped out, when they are eliminated, their leadership is gone. They are removed. And, and as a result, the end of the verse says, verse 9, He will give the vineyard to others. Now, we need to ask some questions about this passage before we continue. First of all, who was responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? Who was responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? I think on the, on the basis of levels, we could say that it was the vine growers. It was the Jewish leaders, right? 
It was, it was they who rejected the Son. It was they who killed the Son. Because based on verse 6, it seems like God has re- removed Himself from all culpability. Look at verse 6 again. He had, that is, owner, He had one more to send, a beloved Son. He sent Him last of all, saying, they will respect My Son. It sounds like it was God who sent the Son. But it looks like at the end of the verse, it appears as if God doesn't know what's going to happen, doesn't it? It says, they will respect My Son. And yet they don't. And so in one sense we could say, well, well, maybe God wasn't responsible. But I would suggest to you that He was responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And I, and I say that in the most ultimate sense. That, that is, He planned it. And I say that for a couple of reasons. First of all, we have to understand what we're looking at here. We're looking at a parable. Okay, a parable is simply meant to, to point you to certain aspects of the comparison. Okay, so you have a story with something that's happening in real life and you're supposed to see the connections in just those things, not everything. So for example, suppose I said of one of my children, you chew like a horse. Okay, what do I mean by that? Okay, perhaps I mean that... that she chews loudly. I just helped you there. I, I narrowed it down to two girls for you. She chews loudly or she chews with her mouth open or something like that, right? Those are the comparisons I, I, I mean there when I, when I make that, uh, we could say, parable. But, but did I also mean that she, she, when she eats, she goes down on all fours and she eats from a trough? Is that what I also meant? So we, so we can't take the illustration and make it mean everything that the parable or, or that the illustration has in view. We have to understand that it only goes so far. Otherwise, that would be an allegory. And what we're talking about here, verse 1 tells us that Jesus is talking about a parable. So he's saying, recognize the points of comparison and leave everything else. That's just ancillary. It's not important to the story. And so... Um, we also have to recognize, I think, that, that God did know what was going to happen to Jesus Christ because of verses 10 and 11. It says, Have you not even read this Scripture? Jesus is saying, The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Okay, so this was prophesied in the Old Testament that this stone, this son, would be rejected. It was prophesied that it would happen. And how did it come about? Verse 11, from the Lord. God knew that His Son would be crucified, that He would be killed, that He would be rejected. One theologian writes, the death of the Son was not a surprise to God. It was a plan. So in the parable itself, we're told not to construe the owner's word, they will respect My Son, as part of the way God is being representative Represented, it is the way the human owner might uh, react. It is incidental to the point of the parable. What God said, in fact, was the builders will reject my son. That's why he brings up this passage from the Old Testament. So on an ultimate level, we have to say that, that it was God who planned the death of Jesus Christ. And if you want proof of that, turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. 
Peter speaking to men of Israel in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Stop there. Who delivered Jesus into the hands of these evil men? It was delivered over by the predetermined and, and, and plan and foreknowledge of God. So on the ultimate level, God was responsible. But notice on, on, a, on, a, uh, on a lower level, you, that is, who is he talking to? Beginning of verse 22, he tells us, men of Israel, you men of Israel, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. What we see here is both, both parties who are responsible. Now, God is responsible in a different way than the people are responsible, right? God is not responsible in that He requires judgment. He deserves judgment because of it, because He simply planned it. They, re- they deserve punishment because they were uh, the ones who, who were turned over to it. And that, that, in fact, uh, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10 tells us that God was sovereign in the Lord's death. He said the Lord was pleased to crush Him. It was God's plan that Jesus would die. Now, back to Mark chapter 12. Why would God send His beloved Son if He knew what was going to happen? If He knew these ruthless vine growers were going to kill Him? Why would He do it? I can think of at least two reasons why God allowed His Son to come. Number one, it's because He loves you. He wanted to have a a way for you to have an interaction with Him where you could have fellowship with Him. And the only way that could happen is if there was a perfect sacrifice. So in that sense, God sent His Son. He did it for you. But also He did it so that His Son would be exalted. Christ didn't stay dead. He was resurrected as proof that God accepted His sacrifice and His perfect life. And as a result, Jesus is exalted to the highest place, the right hand of the throne of God. We need to, read, we need to see the prophecy of rejection. Verses 10 and 11, the Jews understand this quotation that we read, the, the stone which the builders rejected. They understand that this is referring to Israel. But here, Jesus applies it to Himself. He's saying the stones with the stone that you rejected, the stones that the builders rejected, that is the former prophets that have come to you, you've already rejected them. But now I am the stone, and you've rejected me, but I will come become the chief cornerstone, that is the capstone. It was the stone that was put up on the top of the roof as uh, as support for the the parapets. It was uh, if the capstone were too low, it would be tripped over and send people um, over the parapet. If it were too light or wasn't fastened well, then people could lean up against it and it could fall over and do damage on people. So this stone is not only chosen by God and promoted to the premier place in the building, but it also brings with it a dangerous aspect. So if we understand verses 10 and 11, we should also understand that verse 8 is actually a prophecy of what is going to happen to Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the rejected son. I am the rejected stone. And what's going to happen to him? Verse 8, they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. 
they're going to kill me. You, chief priests, elders, scribes, you're going to kill me. But you know what my Father's going to do to you? Verse 9, He's going to come to you with judgment. Notice the pride of rejection in verse 12. The pride of rejection. And they were seeking to seize Him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that He spoke the parable against them, and so they left Him and went away. They understood what was going on here, didn't they? They recognized that Jesus was speaking this against them. But but do you realize that to understand a truth about God is not to accept God and His truth. If you understand what God is saying, doesn't mean you've accepted it. This is exactly what's going on here. Romans 1 tells us that, that all people know that God exists and yet they suppress the truth. They don't want to know that. They don't want to believe it. Yet the Scriptures tell us they do believe it. They just don't want to. They defiantly suppress that truth because they don't want to obey Him. Turn to Revelation chapter 16. See an example of this, of people who reject God even though they know the truth. Revelation chapter 16, verse 9. After all these plagues are coming out, the, the bowls, judgments that are coming out, you have these loathsome sores in verse 2. You have the sea turning to blood, the water turning to blood, verse 4. And then men are scorched with heat, verse 8. And then verse 9. Men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. They knew. And yet, notice how they respond. And they did not repent so as to give God glory. They recognized that all these signs that were coming down from heaven, just like the Egyptians in, in Egypt, when all these plagues are coming down, they recognize who God is. They fail to give Him the glory. Do you see, there are people out there who will see God, who will, who will recognize His truth. They will understand it. And yet, it shows us the extreme blindness, the utter depravity of human nature. People don't want to see God. So they need something to come and, and, and illumine them, to give them eyes to see the whole picture, to see the greatness of Jesus Christ, the glory of the Gospel, and only God can illumine a person's mind. We can't convince them with our own human reasoning. We need God to give them the light for them to see. So we fall on God for mercy. And the religious leaders are so depraved that they are told that they are the ones who will reject Christ, the Son of God. But instead of taking it as a warning, they hunt for ways to arrest Him. How can we seize this man? The only thing that kept them from arresting Jesus was what? It was the fear of the people. They knew that if they arrested Jesus who the people loved, who the people were following, they would have a riot on their hands and they would lose all of their credibility as leaders. So, so as a result, they left Him and went away. And we'll find out later that they figure out other ways to try to trap Jesus. We'll see this as we go on. Well, what I want us to learn from this passage today is at least three things. Number one, I think most importantly, is don't reject God's Son. Don't reject God's Son. To reject God's Son is to reject God. And you know how God's Son is displayed to you? Okay, you're not going to see Him in person. He's not going to come to your house. 
and fly in your bedroom. He comes to you through the Word of God. So to reject God's Word is to reject God's Son, is to reject God. Do you accept the Word of God as truth? Do you recognize that Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh and He dwells among us through His Word? And that means that each one of us have, have to have a relationship with God. And that comes through Jesus Christ. And we, in order to establish that relationship, God has to do a work on us and we have to respond to repentance and belief. We need to turn from our sin and believe that what Jesus did for us was true and it was effective for us. How do you respond when the Word is given to you? When you study it for yourself, when you read it for yourself, when you hear it preached? Do you get frustrated when it doesn't match up with your life? Do you, do you say, that's not for me? How do you respond when it doesn't match your lifestyle? To reject the Word of God is to reject God's Son, which is to reject God. And then number two, we need to be good, good stewards of God's resources. We are stewards. God has given us great resources. His Word his truth, His church. God has graciously provided them just as He did for these vine growers. How will you respond? He has been so patient with you, with perhaps your unbelief or your rejection of Him. He showed His love to you in no better way than, than in sending Jesus Christ. That was the best representation of your love. Have you ever thought, you know what, does God even love me? If you ever think that, look back to the cross. He showed you His love in the best way He possibly could by allowing His Son to die for your sin when you didn't deserve it and when you still don't deserve it. God loves you. How have you responded to His love? He has been patient with you, but there will be a day when His patience will end. If you have not turned and trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, His patience will end. And what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come by Himself and He will destroy those who have rejected His Son. Do not reject God's Son. Be a good steward of His resources. Are you treasuring God's resources? Do you use it for His purposes? Are you trying to, weigh, to find a way to advance yourself or appease God in some way? We need to accept God's Son and be good stewards of His resources. Then thirdly, we need to recognize if the religious leaders persecuted God's servants, and the religious leaders persecuted God's Son, His best representative, then shouldn't we expect that the religious leaders will also, and people of this world will also persecute us? John 15:20, Jesus says, If they persecuted Me, they will persecute you. Don't be surprised when persecution comes. Don't be surprised when people reject you. But don't ever let those persecutions discourage you from running the race. In Acts 5, when the apostles are persecuted, Luke records that they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered to be worthy to suffer for the sake of the gospel. They, were, they counted it a privilege to suffer. If you are persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ, then God is honored with you. Unlike these vine growers, we need to recognize the gifts of God and, and never... Reject the God of the gifts. 
God is behind all of the blessings that He that, that you have received. Will you recognize that and give Him the praise that He deserves? And the best way you can do that is by not rejecting His Word, His Son. Let's pray. Father, we look at a passage like this today and we think that uh, we are more like the servants who were sent and were beaten and killed, but, but really we need to make sure that we're not the vine growers, first of all. That we're not the people who have rejected Your Word and Your Son. And so I pray that You'd help each person to do a genuine evaluation of their own lives to see where they stand before You. And really, that evaluation cannot be done apart from Your Word. There are lots of ideas that we've picked up over the years from our sitting under religious teaching, but, but we can't really measure up to what is necessary to have a relationship with You unless we've looked at the Scriptures for ourselves. Help us to understand what is necessary to be in a right relationship with You. That It takes nothing on our part, really. It's all a work of Your grace and we have to just simply depend on that mercy to turn to the cross and trust in Jesus Christ and His finished work that we can't add anything to it. Lord, perhaps there are people here who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Pray that You'd help them to see the glory of the Gospel today. Give them eyes to see. Illumine their minds. Pray that it would result in repentance and faith. And for those of us who have trusted Christ, Lord, I ask that You would give us grace to obey Your Word to love Your Word and to accept Your Son by, by obeying Him. He said in, John, in, in John's Gospel, if you love Me, keep My commandments. Help us to obey. And help us to do it with all of our hearts out of a heart that loves You. May You change us as a result of having heard Your Word today to be more committed to do works for You as a result of, of the grace that You've given to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.